And I truly believe that if you can take a company with the breadth and the scale, the hyperscale of a Microsoft and the passion and the mission outcomes that our partner solutions can deliver and authentically bring that together, we can do great things and great goodness in the world. And I think that comes from following what you love and believe in. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Menzione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders in this forum to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Menzione. Welcome to, or welcome back to The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzione, your host, and for this episode of the podcast, I welcome Julia Glidden, the Corporate Vice President of Microsoft's Worldwide Public Sector Business. I was excited to have Julia as a guest because I worked very closely with this business while at Microsoft, and it was great to get her perspective and point of view on how the business has evolved, including her renewed emphasis on partners. In this episode, you'll learn more about the mission of her organization and its broad reach driving transformation and innovation in governments, defense and public safety, education, and so much more. We also have a really insightful discussion regarding her personal and professional journey, including challenges she has faced with dyslexia. I hope you enjoy this discussion and join me in getting to know Julia Glidden. Julia! Welcome to the podcast. Hey there, Vince. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to welcome you as a guest at the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Hey. You're the Corporate Vice President of Microsoft's Public Sector Business. And so I'm so excited both to share, have you share with our listeners a little bit more about your business, your priorities, how partners can engage with your organization, and your journey. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be here today and particularly about a, a topic that's passionate for me, the way in which Microsoft works with our partners to deliver on the Microsoft mission, which is to empower every organization and every person on the planet to achieve more. Because like I, what I like to tell my team all the time is the Microsoft mission is the public sector mission. I am so on board with that. And I personally love the mission as well and have spent quite a bit of my career in the public sector space. So for our listeners who may not understand your organization and the focus, can you take us through that for a moment? Sure thing. You know, as I, as I referenced earlier, Worldwide Public Sector at Microsoft works with partners to empower governments, defense and intelligence agencies, and educational institutions around the world to achieve their very best, to deliver on this public sector vocation, which is to improve the lives of, of citizens and individuals everywhere. And we're really committed to building a robust public sector partner ecosystem because we believe that working together, we can deliver very robust, very targeted mission outcome oriented solutions that meet the needs of our public sector clients. I would like to say one of the things that I love most about working with partners is that it truly helps us deliver on, on a view that is passionate for me, which is that public sector is an industry of industries, right? There is no public sector. There is public safety and justice where people dedicate their lives to keeping us safe. There's healthcare where people dedicate their lives to keeping us healthy. There's education where the mission is to, to train minds and to, re, and to instill skills throughout society. And so as an industry of industries, partners play that critical role in allowing us to really deliver very specific solutions for our clients to meet the needs of the day. And we saw this most acutely during COVID, which, which was one of the greatest highlights and most rewarding elements of my entire career to be able to lean into our partner ecosystem. And when the world needed us most, help to literally hold the fabric of civil society together. You know, I... 
so get what you have to say here. I got to spend time in Microsoft in public sector and the work that your organization does, the mission of your organization, right? It's, it's about constituent groups. It's about citizens. It's around education. Some of the most inspiring and uplifting things that Microsoft does is, is in your sector, as you, as you mentioned here. I've had the opportunity, as I said, working within public sector. I'd love to learn with you now in role how has the organization evolved over time? Well, we know living in, in unprecedented times and particularly the last year that we have all experienced together, that change is truly the only constant. I have been, I've had the privilege and the honor to take a role that has been held by some of the true legend, heavyweights, world-renowned um, leaders, female leaders in public sector technology. And my immediate predecessor, Tony Towns Whitley, you know, it's it's just been a career high for me to follow in her footsteps. And when Tony was in role at the time, the focus was on industry priority solutions and really building out public sector specific functionality around our specific solutions with partners. At the same time, that Tony worked and, and so successfully put in the business development and capture capabilities and discipline that Microsoft needed. What we're doing now as we're moving to software development and the cloud is we're moving away from simply looking at solutions to really looking at mission-critical infrastructure, to really building out data centers around the world to give our public sector clients, the resiliency, you know, cloud held the fabric of civil society together, as, as I just mentioned during COVID. And many times clients, and especially public sector clients, want to have local control of their data and local control of where their public services are sitting. And that's really our focus now is moving to cloud, harnessing the power of data and AI, cloud-enabled data and AI to deliver real-time mission-specific solutions to the most pressing needs of society, whether it is the ability during COVID to shift to remote work, to remote learning, or the ability to use AI to deliver real-time decision-making, to improve healthcare prognoses, to improve transportation systems, to deliver on the UN sustainability, um, sustainable development goals. What we're really focused on now is harnessing power, the power of cloud data and AI in an agile ma manner working with our partners to move from, you know, sell to to sell with and drive really important mission outcomes for public sector agencies around the world. As you said, you know, this has been a time like no other, right? We, in the last year, have seen so much transformation. I think Sate has said, you know, first he said a three years transformation in three months, and then it was, you know, for every month, there was another year of yeah. transformation, right? <laughs> it's like, and you're, and the organizations you support, right? You know, you're, the mission is so clear and the transformation has been happening so fast. You mentioned about education. I mean, that we all have that personal experience, 56 million students here just in the United States alone that have all been, you know, educated at home and just parents and families having to deal with this. And the technology, as you said, the partners that have been working with your organization to drive and evolve this transformation has been so great. What did you see that you didn't expect to see during this time? Well, as somebody that has lived eaten and breathed public sector for my entire career, I was shocked, pleasantly surprised, inspired to see that a historically change-resistant sector like the public sector move as quickly and as agilely as it did to, in a time of need, harness the power of technology to deliver real-time needs at real-time speed. Sarah Paquette of Shared Services Canada, one of our fantastic clients, shared with us that the Canadian Shared Service Agency, 400,000 civil servants, over the course of a weekend, because of their strong partnership with Microsoft, pulled forward what was a three-year deployment to, to empower every employee with remote working capabilities, expedited that plan over a weekend and rolled it out over three weeks instead of three years. Wow. And, and as you know, she and I have talked about, it's because for the first time in public sector, the, the risk of doing nothing became greater than the risk of doing something. Now, it's really easy 
for those of us in, in the private sector to talk about the risk aversion of public sector. But I like to always remind everybody, and our partners, of course, know this, you know, we're not building widgets. And when a child welfare system goes down or um, healthcare records get hacked, life is at stake. Life and death is at stake. So the change resistance that we see in the public sector, I have always historically embraced. I mean, would I like things to move faster like all of my clients and friends in the public sector? Sure. But there's always been a reason why this sector has been so change resistant and adverse. And it hasn't just been because, oh, it's government. But seeing the way in which people that have dedicated their lives, their career as a vocation to public service, were able to move so rapidly and so agilely was really, really inspirational. And I think the genie is out of the bottle. I think there is really no going back after what public sector agencies were able to deliver and achieve during COVID. In terms of digital transformation, I think there's a huge chance of new, huge opportunity for us together with our partners to really take public services to the next level in the 21st century. I love what you have to say there. The genie is out of the bottle, right? I don't think we'll ever go back. And, and to your point, I think now that they've gotten a taste for what they can do and how fast and rapidly, mm -hmm. like your mention of this agency in Canada and how rapidly they were able to deploy the technology they're empowered now. I think they finally are embracing and recognizing the value of what we've been talking about for so long. Is that it's right? been great to see. Yep. Just great. Yeah. It really has. It really has. And of course, our partners have been a key focus here, right? So as you know, this podcast focuses in Ultimate Guide to Partnering on successful partnerships. And how has your organization best engaged within Microsoft? What do you believe the key elements for successful partnerships have been? You know, I could talk from a corporate perspective and talk about expertise, skilling, investment, co-sell. But I'm going to, you know, go off script a little here and say, I believe at the end of the day, we are all people. Partnerships are grounded in people, trusting people, people sharing a vision with people and people trusting in each other to deliver on that, on that mission. When you do that, then both organizations, Microsoft and our partners, bring the right technical and industry expertise together, bring the right skilling together, and ultimately sell better together. Public sector clients can smell a sales deal and a desire to close something in quarter and tick a quota box a mile away. Let me tell you, they don't, they may buy out a need from that, but what COVID showed us and what our clients, including Sarah from Shared Service Canada, told us is, they entrusted us with massive life and death rollouts because we were there by their side, because we had invested in them through the years, and because they believed that we would not let them down when they needed us most. So I believe that when you approach that, together with our partners, we create the right market conditions for our public sector clients to, to work with us to buy from us, to consume from our cloud at scale, but it begins and ends with trust. I so agree with you here. What do you do specifically to enable trust? You're there when you don't need something and you're always there when your partner or your client does. And I know that sounds really simple, but again, if I go back to the dialogue I had with Sarah at the height of COVID, you know, she said, we had everybody knocking on our door, offering us solutions when uh, COVID hit and we had to do the rapid snap to remote. Microsoft had been by our side for three years. And I believe that when you, you make that investment and you invest in personal relationships and really getting to know people, getting to know their children, getting to know their career priorities, really understanding their industry, their mission, their, you know, what they need to do to deliver on their vocation, which is public service, you're successful and you develop a partnership and you're in trust. I love what you have to say there around trust and being there for your clients. I, I found that as well when, you know, with, with some of the clients that I was working with, some of the partnerships I was working with, it was, it was a, I want to hear your experiences here as well. Like when the shutdown happened, we're all kind of sitting around going, let's all get on a call. Like, let's get on a Teams call and like, just talk to one another. Did you experience some of that? Oh boy. I was not even, you know, I, I was coming into role. So I wasn't even yet in role. Bringing in 
new team members that I still haven't met, which is hard to believe a year on. And I really found, even though there were 15-hour days, seven days a week, it was so important to just take pause and reach out to people, have a cup of coffee, ask them about their kids. You know, everybody was new to remote working, Vince. It's hard to remember. We're used to the dog barking and the UPS driver coming and the kid carpet bombing the meeting. But back then, that was still really new. And taking that time was important. And my team did virtual cocktails on Friday afternoons. And since we're all over the world, we had some people having mimosas on a Saturday morning, some people having a cup of tea at midnight because they were struggling to stay awake. You know, but I did it always in front of my fireplace up here on the Canadian border because it was, you know, minus 20 Celsius outside. But I think that those are some of the most powerful moments we had as a team because we were able to come into each other's homes. You know, it wasn't just a corporate function. It wasn't just a restaurant. We got to get to know each other a little bit more as humans. And that was very important. You know, you brought up a really good point because you came into role during this time. And it's so different than, you know, meeting one-on-one with your direct reports in a in a real setting, you know, where you're in the office together. How did that feel? Like, how did you develop intimacy with each of your... <laughs> well, I, I laugh a little bit because one of my new leaders reminded me that he first met me, and I'm using the, you know, the bunny ears, quotation marks, in the front of my truck with two dogs in the back because my husband and I realized what was going to hit with the pandemic. And as you recall, it it, it struck first in the Seattle area. And our yes. son was, he's, was 13 at the time in boarding school in Scotland. And he was coming home this time last year for his five-week spring break. And I got scared. We didn't know what was really going to happen. And I thought, you know, we could get quarantined in Seattle and have a kid sitting in the Boston airport and not see him. So we packed up the truck and, you know, headed east. You know, we did the reverse head west. One of my directs, I had to interview him in the front seat of my truck, and he still remembers that. I was thinking about what a trip that must have been. How many days did it take? I just got curious. Oh, that that was, we took seven days because the, the truck got locked on the way as we were leaving, so we couldn't get into the boot. So we had to go to the uh, garage, which was right near where the epicenter broke out. I mean, I could probably run a mini screen trip play about that, about that great trek home. <laughs> oh my goodness. That'd be a great movie sometime. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but, or that, that point somewhere in Dakota where I got called on a call and I was like, boy, someone, someone needs to run this crisis response. <laughs> and I put the call on mute and look at my husband and go, oh boy, that's me. Oh my goodness. It's wow. What a time, right? Uh, some great stories you have. Like I said, I do think it would be a great book or uh, maybe a movie or at, at some point, but you know, this intimacy too, like how do you manage your team remotely? Like, how do you find that works? You mentioned, you mentioned the cocktail hours, the happy hours, which I think is amazing given the time zones. I, I would love to participate at some point. I'll have a glass of wine ready. It shows but you what a great team I had because, you know, almost, you know, I mean, of course, some people do just prefer non-alcoholic, but for those that do like to imbibe a bit, they all showed up no matter what time it was. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Give people an excuse to drink mimosas, as you said. Absolutely. That's yeah, wonderful. So talk to our listeners a little bit. You, you, you know, this, oh, this, you mentioned this earlier, and I think this is tr- so true. People don't understand public sector. So many people outside of public sector that look on the outside looking in, and you go public sector, their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. You did a really great job of explaining for our listeners the various components and the mission and sort of the mission components. Can you tell us a little bit more about that strategy for your organization and are you, how are you thinking about roles and are you funding specific roles to drive the partner component of that strategy? Yeah. The, the, the partner component for public sector, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is, is so critical because, you know, on the one hand, I've never met a public sector team in a company that doesn't say, oh, Julia, you can't come to Kazakhstan and talk to my clients. You don't understand they're different. I was like, well, I was actually at the UN panel last year, and I understand exactly what the digital Kazakhstan 2025 agenda is, right? So no matter where you go in the world, the issues that public sector clients face is the same. We have a digital maturity model that we've built out at Microsoft based on my real 20 years of working with the UN and public sector clients around the world that, that really makes it very clear. 
different governments and different agencies and different divisions within agencies can be at a different stages to move to cloud and AI and the public service of the future. But the problems, the challenges, the migration steps, they're all the same. No matter where you are in the world, they're all the same. So what what's different? Partners make it different because our partners really go deep in markets. You know, if you work in local government, you really understand the needs of the local government, you know, in a country that you're working on. If you work in public safety and justice, you, you know, you really know how to adapt the solution for the differences between, you know, the, the crime problems in Johannesburg and the the political context and the regulatory needs that you may have if you're doing business in Germany and the political context and, you know, the particular needs of the U.S. You know, our partners really allow us to take the commonalities of government and and personalize it. And so what we've done in Worldwide Public Sector this year that I'm really so proud of and very proud of the team is we have set up a, a bespoke public sector strategy team to enable us to really better go deep across all the you know areas, public sector as the industry of industries, whether it's government, defense and intelligence, education, as I as I mentioned, and really then work across all the engines of Microsoft, GPS, marketing, engineering, field and sales, and connect in deeply to, to the field and give our partners that that public sector TLC, that public sector differentiation that they need so that we can bring even more as we sell together into our into our clients to the table. Because cliched as it is, we are always better together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love what you've done in terms of reinvigorating the partner strategy within the public sector organization. So really great to see the, the work that's gone on here. And also, you know, just, and people don't always understand working with Microsoft, like your team also works across the various subsidiaries too, right? So those resources on your team, tell, tell our listeners a little bit how they plug in, but they, I understand they do plug in very well within the subs- subsidiaries. Yes. I, I love to talk about, and I believe in it, one Microsoft, and I talk about the public sector family. I never see a subsidiary and worldwide or you know, the partner team versus the selling team in the field. We have worked really hard this last year. And again, through the power of video conferencing and teams to, to make sure that we stay very closely connected with what is happening from a public policy perspective, from a crisis perspective, from a what the market needs perspective with our colleagues in the subsidiaries in the field so that Together, we are bringing the best engines of Microsoft, again, whether it's marketing, whether it is our partner teams in global, whether it's, um, you know, the, the kind of bespoke engineering needs we, we have to bring to the table to, to pilot, to do a proof of concept, to help a client migrate complex workloads. And so, you know, our relationship has really been focused, or we have really been focused on building a familial relationship with the subsidiaries, one Microsoft, no line of differentiation across our teams. So that we're better able to articulate a very, you know, strong and robust point of view on how we deliver and and successfully execute against our clients' mission critical outcomes and priorities. You know, and I've seen this firsthand. I've had the privilege of working with some of those partners that your team engages with. And what's really nice is to see the coordination between your leaders and your team. And the various, because there are resources all over the world. People don't realize that, but it's it's very different when you move out of the U.S. market, which I've been in. Um, there's not as many resources. So really your team plays even a more pivotal role with those partners. Yes. No, I mean, that's a, that's really well, well spotted, well said. And this is not unique to Microsoft. I've I've worked in many, many large IT organizations through the years and, you know, it isn't there's U.S. and rest of the world. There is just because of the large nature of the market and the large, you know, the aggregate nature of the of the deal sizes that there's more resources in the U.S. I have to confess, I have historically found the U.S. the least interesting market for me to work in because I really love bringing all the power of a large corporate 
into a subsidiary like Singapore, for example, a country that is at the top of every UNE government index, every digital digital innovation index that there is, but it's really pioneering the future of digital government or Estonia. And then helping that team deliver on the future and then taking those innovations that are often co-developed with our partners back into the U.S. is is one of those things you can tell really gives me a, a super career high. Lots of energy from doing that. I can hear that. You know, I, I think about that in terms of agility, right? Because these smaller entities uh, can be more agile oh, yeah. than the big the big U.S. government entities. And then also, you play a different role in those countries, right? I know uh, from working with your predecessors, like you spent a lot of time, if we were in a position where you could travel, you'd be going over to Estonia or to Singapore to actually have meetings with leaders and maybe discussing public policy. And For sure. So I'd like to shift a little bit here because like partnerships, I want to understand from you, like how do partnerships play a role maybe in the public policy work that you do? Well, it's, it's, it's fundamental and, it, and it's, you know, foundational. I've spent, as, as I mentioned, my whole career in, in public sector. I actually had wanted to go to the Kennedy School of Government. That was the plan. And then I got persuaded by Uma Thurman's uncle, Dean Thurman, to put an application in for a scholarship to Oxford. Wow. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I ended up going down an international relations path, which was also my public love. I've always loved public policy, and I've always loved international affairs and relations. And so those two worlds kind of brought me to where I am today. And and I say that by way of saying, I've spent my whole life in public sector and public policy. And what my friends in that world will tell me and, you know, trusted clients is public sector um, stakeholders leaders are navigating a world of complexity. They know what they don't know. And they're often looking for trusted, back to that word, partner, back to that word, trusted partners that they can lean on and rely on to help them shape the digital future, to help them make the right decisions. You know, that was on a UN panel a couple of years back where we had a robust discussion about the danger of legislating for what we know, right, as the world is shifting so so rapidly and stifling innovation in the past, right? Because regulation and legislation is historically how public policy actors have worked. But if you don't know what a new technology or emerging technology like blockchain is going to do, if you regulate it with 20th century paradigms, you kind of suffocate the, you know, you, you put the genie back in the bottle and you suffocate it. So what I really wanted to just articulate is public sector is hungry and eager to hear from the private sector. And many of our partners have in-market senior level access to the highest levels of government where there's an openness and a receptivity to shape pivotal discussions to help public sector agencies forge the legislative and regulatory policy framework of the future for the betterment of, of their society, of innovation, skills, the economic growth. And one of the things I love most about my job, and I miss most about not being able to travel, I don't miss the jet lag. I think this is the first time in 30 years I have not had jet lag in a year. But I do miss being able to go to Australia, sit down with the digital transformation agency, talk about the trends I'm seeing around the world, hear about the concerns they have around pressing issues like data protection and privacy and data localization. And together with our partners, articulate with them, you know, strong ways to to deliver on data governance, to meet cybersecurity threats, to embrace the best of cloud in the most secure way possible. And that's something I'm really looking forward to doing when, you know, and I'm going to be glass half full when vaccines hit and the world returns to the next normal. You know, you brought up some really great points here around a the work you do, which is amazing, and and kudos for not having jet lag for a year. <laughs> I think we're going to open up the world pretty soon here once we're all vaccinated. You know, I was thinking about this in the context of partners because when the work I did in the U.S. as well, some of them just intuitively they didn't re- realize the power that they have coming from the commercial sector to help these organizations. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things I. It was insightful for me because I also did some work in policy and I'm a member of Voices for Innovation, which is an organization that advocates for uh, various policies and works with partners to do so. So I'm just interested, like, is there anything special you do f- 
to bring the partner in or, or do they are they intuitively experienced here? We lean in heavily on our partners and their local relationship in the same way as I was articulating, leaning in heavily on their knowledge of the particular needs within a market for the application of a solution. Hard for me to say, you know, in this COVID context, things have been more difficult, but we try to do, if the world were normal, I would be doing regular roundtables and breakfast roundtables with our policymakers, with, with ministerial level decision makers, with heads of agency going around the world and, and really bringing our partners into the table. We're having to do, and I know Sacha loves to do that. We're having to do it virtually now. And this is one area that I am particularly looking forward to getting jet lagged for because those types of policy discussions, I, I often think, you know, they're best fueled face to face. And, and we're looking forward to rolling out a much more formal effort in that regard when, when we do get back to the next normal. You know, one of the things I've been saying in the podcasts and some of the speeches that I've given and just in conversations in general has been that we in the tech sector are in a very unique position to help lead during this time. And there's been, in some cases, there's been a lack of leadership, right? But we are showing the way forward. I think it's so exciting, the work that you do and your team does and these partners do right now to help really lead the change. Oh yeah, we are forging the future and we are part of history. What is, and not just because of the historical inflection point tech was at, you know, January of last year when the world was as we all remembered it. But COVID just took that and injected it with rocket fuel. You know, if we were going to the moon in January, we're at Pluto now and how much has changed. And this has been part of, we are making history and we are making it together. Microsoft, our partner ecosystem and our public policy clients, stakeholders, friends. And, and it's a privilege and an honor to be part of this journey and I know as somebody who started my career in academia and, and still has throughout my career tried to write articles and capture important technology moments in the moment, I genuinely know I can see the HBR use cases and case studies that are going to come out of this era. I can see the books. I have friends that have founded some of the oldest and most longstanding digital government classes and seminars and training series in the world. And I just know that we are literally creating the content for the future. It's an exciting time. It really is. You know, I'd love to pivot. We've been talking a little bit about your journey and I, I, I want to learn about Uma Thurman's uncle. In fact, I think this is going to be really fascinating here. I do share, I, I believe that we, as part of what we give back to the world, it's so important for our next generation to learn how leaders like you got to this spot in your career. So I was hoping we could spend some time here, if you don't mind, on your personal and professional journey. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about getting to Oxford and that doctorate degree. I was hoping you could share more about your path with our listeners there. You know, I, when you said Ox, can I take a step back and pause for my moment, madman moment in time? I'd love that. I'd love to hear about that. So flash forward post-Oxford, I just came out in 1995 with a doctorate in international relations. My first job was in public relations in New York City. It was a time, I'm really dating myself, when cigar smoking and closed doors and cigarette smoking, page three... For those of you that are not British, it was the British tabloids had semi-naked women on page three of the tabloids. Those were the screensavers for my my first bosses. Oh my goodness. The jokes about me coming from Oxford and being an intellectual were flying. And I have a slight dyslexia. So I would often have typos because the autocorrect was not as sophisticated back in the day. I'm now sounding like grandmother here, but they would pick up my faxes and say, ah! Oxford. Oxford has a typo. <laughs> I could like so as she used to tell me more about Oxford, all I could hear was Oxford. Oxford has a typo. And think, wow, I bet they didn't think, you know, Oxford was gonna be driving as much goodness in the world of technology at scale <laughs> as I have ended up being, as I've ended up doing. Oh, that's fascinating. So tell us a little bit more. Like was there a best piece of advice you received on the journey? Like after you got started, after this madman moment, what happened next? Well, 
if I look back, right, someone had asked me um, in an interview last autumn, and I, and I would tell you, I have never aspired to be at the top of anything, to be where I've gotten to. I have always followed my interests. I was a little girl back, I'm really sounding old now, there were only four channels. And on Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, we would watch PBS and the National Geographic. And I would see the zebras running across the plains of Africa. And I would want to see the world. I would just want to get out of this small New England town I grew up in, Holyoke, Massachusetts, and, and see the world. And at the same time, I would watch PBS News. And Cokie Roberts was a really powerful, seminal, pioneering female broadcaster. And she knew so much. She seemed to just know so much about the world. And so those two desires to see the world and to know about the world were what really compelled me. I took a chance to be the first class of women at Columbia. It was, it was an honor. It was just a real privilege. It was, again, a learning moment to be one of 300 women in a 2,600-person uh, institution that, that was the last Ivy League to go co-ed. That experience at Columbia, which was, again, about policy and history and philosophy in the world. And then that Dean Thurman, who called me in, I'll never forget, it was the Friday before Super Bowl Sunday. And he said, Glidden, I don't see your application for the Kellett scholarship. And I said, oh, Dean Thurman, you know, kids like me don't win these things. And I, you know, was there on scholarship. I didn't come from a, you know, a lot of money. I assumed that, you know, kids with, you know, a more privileged background than me won these things. And he just glared at me, Vince. He snapped his pencil and he said, Glidden, I want it on my desk by 9 a.m. Monday. Wow. I love that. I love Dean Thurman. Well, I do my too. So I, I cranked out the application. And before I headed down to Wall Street for a Super Bowl party, I slipped it under his desk. And I guess, you know, the rest is to say it's history. But, you know, long story short, at Oxford, I went and I did a master's degree in international relations. Um, studying with some really great people, many household names you, you'd recognize today, very small classes of 13. My class was 13, and we studied close to the class ahead of us of 13. And then I was really lucky to get into the doctorate program and win a scholarship to do my doctorate, Neoconservatives in U.S. Foreign Policy and Intellectual History. And so I would say to you, and now here, look at what I'm doing. We've just discussed being able to talk about policy with government officials around the world, to be able to lean in with partners and create solutions that are customized for different parts of the world, depending on their different point in time, their different journey, their different needs. I really look at this amazing position I have today to combine my interests as the result of me always following my interests, not a career path. I was going to ask you about that. How did you get to this spot, right? I mean, how, how did you pick technology going from the academic or intellectual disciplines? Sometimes, you know, there's luck and then sometimes you make your luck. So I started my first job in Oxford, you know, public um, relations company, but I pivoted to public policy because that was what I was interested in. And I was public policy at a global scale. So I ended up doing a huge amount of work for United Airlines, really as stepping in as the deputy communications director when there was an absent vacuum for the United Airlines for a year or two, working on open skies agreement, big trade agreements around the world, which again, if you think about it, I didn't, as a little girl, say I want to be a PR executive in New York. I wanted to work in public policy and international relations. And then during my time in public relations, the dot-com boom happened. And I just saw this rapid pace of change that interested me. And I was interested in public policy, as I keep telling you all. And I had this great opportunity to run and launch the world's first internet company, internet election company, and the world's first legally binding internet election, which was the Arizona Democratic Primary. I was in the Grand Canyon with one of the Navajo Nation, the Navajo Nation chief, um, you know, using the power of internet voting to help to get the Navajo Nation to use the internet. I mean, it was just wild times. And, you know, from that, uh, the course kind of just led me to 
continue to focus on public policy, international expansion, and technology. You know, Julia, you mentioned about being dyslexic. I have a niece and a brother-in-law who both are dyslexic. And I'm just kind of curious how that shaped and molded your trajectory. You know, I'm I'm lucky. I didn't even know I... I had something called compensatory dyslexia, which I didn't realize I had until some pretty seminal moments in grad school. But I, what I always struggled with was spelling. And I always struggled with teachers saying, you're so smart and, you know, you're so bright, but you just, you know, you need to take more time. You know, it was almost like you're smart and bright, but you're lazy. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that yeah. kind of erodes your co- confidence. Now, it, it turned out Pilates classes or Jane Fonda's aerobics, sorry, I would always kick and move with the teacher because I saw things like a mirror. So I would go into these aerobics classes and come out with my shins, you know, black and blue because I'd be kicking myself and everybody else and then thinking I was uncoordinated, you know, what's wrong with me. And there was one night in grad school and my friend was telling me that to turn right to go to the ladies room in his flat. And I kept turning left and he yelled at me. I think we were drinking. It was late at night and he'd never snapped at me before. He was a really dear friend. He felt so bad about this, Vince, that the next day he called and he said, hey, Julia, you know, you really kept turning left when I said right. And I said, yeah, you know, I struggle with left and right. I have to do the L on my hand. And, you know, probably didn't because I was having too much Sauvignon. And he said, did you crawl as a kid? And I said, well, let me, you know, I called my mother. My mother says, oh, gosh, no, we didn't. We used to have parties with, you know, your aunt and uncle to try to teach you to crawl. So anyway, long-winded way of saying I had a, I was lucky because the dyslexia I had meant that somehow I compensated not crawling meant some parts of my brain wasn't talking right to each other, but I had a, I compensated for it with a very analytical, verbal, strategic brain. So I was able to compensate for it, right? I probably didn't maybe have the same struggles as other people, but it shaped me because it eroded my confidence and I really understand, you know, understand how much that's done to people with dyslexia their, their whole lives. And then I hope it's made me a better person because it's helped me to appreciate that we all bring unique gifts and talents to the world. You know, that maybe I struggled on the SAT, for example, Vince, you know, I just couldn't get the formula for figuring out which fraction was right. You know, my brain did not work that way. I was lucky I was able to go to great schools. I don't think today with my SAT scores, I ever would have stood a chance. But it didn't mean I wasn't smart in my own way. And I hope we have more sensitivity to that today and and more awareness of that, that diversity and inclusion is about diversity and inclusion of all types of people and brains and characters and ways of interacting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that. I think there's a big message here for a lot of our listeners. So I, I really appreciate that. My pleasure. You know, I, I'm going to pivot a little bit more here. We have been talking about this time like no other. I've had some amazing guests, Dr. Michael Gervais, who is probably one of the preeminent leaders in mindfulness and first principles and has worked with Satya's leadership team. And we've talked about mindfulness and first principles on the podcast with him. I'm curious, you know, as you're living through this, is there anything that you're doing specifically for your own mindfulness? Oh, yeah. I live in a, I am so blessed to live in a beautiful remote mountain location on the main Canadian border. The first thing I do, if I even wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I look outside and I am grateful. I thank God for what I have. And I try to remain grateful and start the day with gratitude for all that I have. I then, I get my energy and people think I'm an extrovert, but I actually get my energy being alone. I'm actually quite an introvert. I get my energy from nature. I get my energy from, I create an hour every day to walk. No matter what is going on in my day, I walk the mountain and I spend all of my weekends either skiing or snowshoeing or ice skating or hiking or kayaking. I'm lucky. I live in a beautiful place and I, and I'm very blessed, but my mindfulness and my energy comes from making sure I carve out that time for me to recharge through walking and gratitude and being in nature. And then the other thing, I'm ruthless about my work-life balance because if I 
can't take care of my family and myself through the the walking and mindfulness. I can't be there for my team. And I believe being there for my team is setting an example that that we need to be there for our families, right? I and mean, this is part of the public sector mission I've been talking about, the vocation, being there for people. And so I really, unless it's absolutely necessary, I may shut down at midnight on a Friday night, but I don't start work again until a Monday. And after a very painful loss last summer where I got that balance a bit out of whack under the pressures of COVID, I try to stop every night at eight and have dinner with my my husband and son. So getting that work-life balance right, being close to my family, to nature, and getting inspiration from the mountains, that that's what I do. And hopefully remind my team to the point of where they're tired of me nagging um, to follow the example in their own way and in a way that makes sense for them. Because I keep you know, saying to everybody, we work to live. We don't live to work. So many great thoughts and advice here. Some really great nuggets around around mindfulness. I'm so glad you got to share that with us. And thank you. We've talked about so much here today. But is there is one thing that Julia would like to be known for? Being a good person. Being a good person. What does a good person look like? What does that, that vision look like? Someone you can trust. Somebody who's authentic. Somebody who is empathetic. I just think we need more kindness in the world. And... It's really, really important to me. It's more important to me than money. It's more important to me than job title. I just, I really believe that if my father passed away almost 25 years ago, and he was a beloved history teacher, 700 people came to his funeral. He died quite young. He is talked about with such reverential terms. His grandchildren, who he never met, I'm going to cry, Talk about Grandpa Neil, my husband who never met him, talks about my father as if he knew him. That's a legacy. That's a legacy to be proud of. If I can, if I could have one half of the respect my father, one quarter has among the people's lives he's touched, I would consider myself a successful person. Sounds like an amazing man. So I've got one more question for you. It's one I have a lot of fun with, so I hope you can... <laughs> Have some fun with me on this. We'll see. It depends on depends on what your definition of fun is. <laughs> well, we're hoping to do this. I if you're hosting a dinner party, let's start there. And you know, it's at a point where we're vaccinated. This is either social distance. <laughs> no, or not socially COVID. distance, and there's no place. We could social distance. We could wear a mask. We could be vaccinated. But you're having this wonderful dinner party, and you can invite any three guests, and hopefully, you'll have it up on the mountain there on the Canadian border. Who would you invite to this dinner party? What three guests would you invite to this dinner party and why? Oh, that's so easy. Both Queen Elizabeth's and Winston Churchill. Wow. I mean, I've been watching The Crown, so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated as to why. I mean, I can understand why, but maybe for our listeners, any I more think, on that? I think, again, if I talk about what's always interested me, I've always been interested in understanding the world. And, and history has been a part of that. My dad was a history teacher. I have always been interested in other cultures, and I've always been interested in public policy. Uh, I didn't mention that my husband's British. I spent over half my life, you know, having gone to Oxford on that. My mother called it, as I had gone to Oxford before grad school in a junior year abroad, she called it the junior year from hell that never ended because I, because I was never coming home. You know, I, like I never actually seemed to have come home from it. So I've spent a lot of my life in the UK, been heavily influenced by and fascinated by British history, had the privilege to live amongst so much of British history, both in London and at Oxford. Studied Winston Churchill's interwar volumes, been amazed by the man's vision and tenacity. And then of course, as a female leader, hard for me to even think of myself as a leader because I just don't in my own mind. But you think about the trajectory from Queen Elizabeth I to this amazing woman who holds the crown now and has set such an example around the world. Just the chance to hear their story would just be amazing. I mean, I, personally, I'd, I, I'd buy a ticket to my own dinner party. I'm getting, I'm getting myself sad. it. I would certainly attend. Now you have one more person you can invite. Is who's the third person, or do you have one? Um, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. Oh, I yeah. love that. Oh, that'd be a fascinating Ryan conversation, right? 
and and, and get the two greatest prime ministers in, in British history to exchange notes. I think she'd love Churchill. And, you know, such a different relationship between Queen Elizabeth II and, you know, between Winston Churchill, sort of a father figure to her in many yeah. ways, right? Yeah. And then Matt and Margaret Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher, they had a little bit of a contentious relationship, if I remember. They sure did. And it goes to show, you know, I don't think we should draw assumptions that just because we're the same in certain ways, we're going to be the same in others. But uh, talk about some fire. Now you, you reminded me, Vince, I'm going back to my crown. I I, I might have a, a quite a fiery little dinner party going on there. <laughs> I, I'd love it. I'd love it. Well, maybe I could come I could pop in for an after dinner drink. How's that? Now, I will, I will, I will invite you from the aperitif through to dessert. How's that? Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. So you have been an amazing guest. I just love this conversation. Get getting to know you better today. I can't wait till we can meet in person at some point in the future. I was wondering if you have any closing comments, maybe advice for our listeners. A lot of the partners out there that might want to work with the public sector business, you know, and, and also to help them as they look to optimize for success? You know, it's the consistent theme. Do what you love, follow what you love, believe in what you love, invest in what you love. I have to believe partners that are working in public sector love and believe in the public sector mission and are committed within the spaces that they're working in to delivering on that mission. And I truly believe that if you can take a company with the breadth and the scale, the hyperscale of a Microsoft and the passion and the mission outcomes that our partner solutions can deliver and authentically bring that together, we can do great things and great goodness in the world. And I think that comes from following what you love and believe in. It is so exciting. You know, you've recharged my excitement around the public sector space and so great to have you enroll, Julia, and so great to have you as a guest today on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Vince. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzion. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.